Hello everybody and welcome to the final episode for 2020 of What Will The Smart Party Do? I'm here as always with my good friend Baz. How are you doing Baz? Well I was alright till you said it was the final episode oh, of the year. Oh, Just for a second there. You know what this year's like, it might be the final episode, who knows. <laughs> Keep it light. <laughs> Dig this out of the ruins of my house in years to come. Blimey. Yes, I'm alright now, my heart's gone down to just the normal rabbit-like rate. Yes, thank you, my friend. <laughs> well, to to help us in our uh, our bunker for the end of year, so it's not just me and you, we've also got Matt from Steve Voice Games. How are you doing, Matt? I am doing extremely well. Thanks for having me on your last episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we figured this time what we might do is have a little bit of a, not a full review of the year, but perhaps just some reflections on how things have gone, because it's been an odd year. If you've been attending Dragon Meet virtually, you may have heard our seminar, and if you didn't, we're going to work to try and get an episode out from some recordings we've unearthed of that. But we won't go into too much detail of the past year, I think we're more looking forward to happier times, maybe not predictions for the future in these uh, esoteric era that we live in, but uh, perhaps plans for the future, things, aspirations, hopes, dreams, and such like. So perhaps, Matt, if I could start with you initially, you with Steamforge Games guys do lots of Kickstarters and things like that. Given it's been uh, an unusual year, may you live in interesting times as the Chinese curse goes, uh, how do you think all that kind of stuff's going? I know you're not uh, necessarily an RPG producer per se, although you're bringing out your epic encounter stuff now, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. But how, how do you find that line has everything that's happened this year impacted that at all or do you think producing games and RPGs and stuff like that is still as easy as it always was or, or maybe it's even improved I don't know you tell me so we've done two kickstars this year we did one at the very beginning of lockdown which was Resident Evil 3 and that performed slightly better than we had forecast which was great so that had a that had a really strong showing but I think that was, as I say, right at the very beginning, back in sort of March time. So here in the UK, we, we kind of locked down and we were all terribly good at locking down for that first sort of period of time. And it was all quite fun and exciting as best you possibly can in a worldwide pandemic. But it was all just novel. And I think people really enjoyed spending time online and uh, Kickstarter got uh, a bit of a, you know, like a, quite a bit of traffic as a result of that. And then we did another Kickstarter um, that finished last month, um, which was an original IP, a game called Bardsung, um, which is a dungeon explorer game with really heavy RPG credentials attached to it. And we were blown away with how successful that was. So that was uh, at the, right at the very end um, of, of our kind of current lockdown in, in the UK. And that um, exceeded our expectations by a long way. You know, it went at least 30% past my kind of aspirational, I'll be over the moon level. Uh, mm. And it just kept going. So um, so I don't feel that Kickstarter has necessarily been massively impacted. I think if, I, if I've seen some of the things that have been popping up on Kickstarter, there is a degree of timing. There's, there's always key. Um, and I do think that because people are, or have been this year, online more, I think the community, is in, the community interaction tends to be more prolific and, and stronger. 
So if you have a good product, I do think the community knits behind it quite quite well and you see an awful lot of really good positive kind of uh, aspects to it, you know, sort of self-policing and excitement and, and, and coming up with ideas. And when you see like a, a you know, a chat fizzing like that, it's, it's really exciting. But I do think for then some of the other products that maybe came to Kickstarter a little bit earlier than they ought to have, or they weren't quite fully formed or they, they, they were a bit weaker, Unfortunately, that positivity can very quickly shift into the negative space, and 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 things get kind of ripped apart quite quite a lot, um, perhaps more than they would have done up until this point. But but no, I think I think overall Kickstarter has um, has been really strong for us this year. Uh, we just to kind of reveal a little bit behind the curtain, we deliberately targeted ending Bardsung on on Black Friday. What we didn't do, um, but we are now fully aware of, is uh, we had a massive spike on the day before Black Friday, which was indeed Thanksgiving. And there's uh, so I guess people in in the states were at home and uh, had had a couple of whiskeys and uh, weren't really up to much because of they were in sort of depending on what state you're in, they were in lockdown or just not travelling as much as they perhaps ought to you know, used to used to be. Um, and we actually saw quite a lot of people in comments saying, thank God this is this project's going on, this is Bartong, thank God this is happening. I've actually got people I can chat with, you know, on a on a relatively lonely Thanksgiving. And so that was quite that was quite nice. And then from a business perspective, the spike was like ridiculous. I've never seen a Kickstarter do what did Bartsung did in terms of the kick track uh, profile. Um thank yeah, Thanksgiving on, on the second but last day was uh, a post effect genius move. <laughs> <laughs> claim it <laughs> that must have led to a depressing last day which wasn't as good as the previous one <laughs> it's the interesting thing about Kickstarters is, and, and Baz you'll know this because you've, you've gone through this process yeah. is there is there is a point so you have to work really hard in the in the time leading up to your Kickstarter and then what you're looking for is that first day two days and that really sets your stall out that sets the pace and then what you're looking for is um, you are going to bathtub. It's just, it's just entirely natural, but you're looking for like key events to kind of go through to kind of keep the momentum going and build towards the last day, which is why you end up with a bathtub shape on your kick track. Um, but what you um, once you get a certain point, then the, the 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 marketing or the or the awareness of the product becomes organically driven. You hit you hit a tipping point and it starts generating its own momentum. And we were really fortunate that we were with Bardsung past that tipping point relatively early in the campaign. So it really started to accelerate and just continued accelerating towards the end. It's um I, I didn't know what kick track was till I did a Kickstarter. I don't think you would, would you? Um so for those those who don't know, it's a like a little predictive tool, isn't it? So when you launch a Kickstarter, all of a sudden you get quite popular to emails and spam and marketing and people who want to tell you how to do it better. Um, but hmm. One of the good tools out there is stuff like KickTrack. There are other ones available and, and they kind of look at your initial kind of pledge levels and then tell you how much you're going to earn at the end of it. And then, and then well, Matt, I think it's reasonably accurate. I think it'd be fair to say, wouldn't they? With, yeah, so I mean, KickTrack kick one is not the most accurate. They they, they use um, a relatively linear um, uh, exponential kind of uh, calculation on it. Um, which is why after the first day you see silly numbers like oh it's going to do eight million dollars. You're like no, that was just the first day. But but it, like like all data sets, as time progresses and the data becomes 
um, uh, you get a, a larger data set, then then the predictability becomes better and better and better. So, KickTrack's fun because it recognize it, it gives you a daily funded uh, the number of new backers and and quite importantly the number of comments that are made. Um, so you can actually gauge how healthy um, the, the the community of people who are getting behind your project is. If they're really engaged, then you should see those comments just going up and up and up. Have you um, have you noticed how the uh the little bar chart, the little chart that you get for a kick uh, for a Kickstarter, as you say, Matt, with that first spike and then the bathtub effect, then it comes back up at the end. It looks exactly like the COVID spike in the UK over the last year. It looks <laughs> like a Kickstarter. Well, I, I hope that COVID doesn't follow the the curve that we had with Bardsung because that was uh, it went up and then it dropped and then it went up and then it dropped and then went up and then it dropped and then I've never seen the last two days of a project exceed the first two days before. Like I, I can't think of a project where it's done that. So yeah, let's hope COVID doesn't do that. That would suck. Well, you've got the Thanksgiving link, but let's um, let's move away from that then. Um, so I did mention briefly that Epic Encounters, which isn't Kickstarter but pre-ordered, is what you've been doing with that. So do you want to tell our lovely listeners a little bit more about that project? So Epic Encounters is uh, is an ongoing series um, of products that we're making. What I wanted to deliver was a really easy way for people to um, build useful collections of minis um, for running role-playing games and also to provide an additional layer of, of value over the top of just being a box of minis so you know we pride ourselves in the minis that we make we think we we think we make amongst the best PVC minis that you can get um, and so, you know, we can get the price point really respectable. So if you want to buy a, a tribe of kobolds, you can buy a tribe of kobolds. It's all in one box. You don't have to sort through all the different blisters or try and find the ones that you like. They're just all in one box. And then what we wanted to do was, because we recognized the, the, the you know, the combination of lockdown, the combination of um, rising popularity of, of game streams, you know, and, and sort of live, act, live play, live play and just the general awareness of of D and D and similar games entering into sort of pop culture, you're seeing quite a lot of newish players coming into the um, into into the hobby, which for me has always been one of my biggest passions is 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 creating gateway style products to bring more people into hobby. So from a business perspective, it makes sense, right? The more people who play, the more potential customers I have. I think um, a high tide rises all boats. So if all games manufacturers and, and publishers and developers adopt a similar principle, we'll get more people into the hobby. But actually, more importantly than all of that, I've had 30 years of fun and, and, and tend to have another 30 years of fun out of this hobby. I think it's a, a brilliant hobby that, that when you get exposed to it, you it's, it's so easy to fall in love with, with it. There's so many different aspects to it. So why not share it with people and get more people playing? So the the idea with epic encounters was to take a lot of the hard lessons learned uh through 20 years 30 years of gming and and distill that down into um into a, an adventure that someone who perhaps doesn't have 20 or 30 years experience can read it and go oh okay you can do that because i think one of the conversations i remember having um was um uh, with a guy called charles he used to uh, be our commercial director um uh, based over in the states and he was getting into running D&D, or he was getting into D&D in a really big way. And he was like, man, I, you know, I really want to get into D&D, but I don't want to read nine, like 900 pages of rule books. I'm like, 
well, when have you ever got to ride, read 900? He goes, well, the PHB and the DMG and the Monster Manual, that's about 900 pages. I'm like, one, you don't need to read that, you don't need to read that, and this book, as a GM, you need to read about 10 pages. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what you need to get started. Obviously, as you play and gain experience, you'll kind of, you know, know what you can and can't do. And then I saw, you know, I was chatting um, to him about other bits of bobs. I said, oh, well, you know, look, if you've got kobolds running in at you, you know, running in and, and, the, and the players are kind of blasting them to bits, we'll have one of them suddenly pour something on his on his spear and, and now, he's, you know, the, the end of his spear is kind of dripping in venom. He's like, can you do that? It doesn't say you can do that in the Monster Manual. I'm like, it's a role-playing game, dude. You can do whatever the hell you want, right? As long as you're not cheating or you're unfair to your players you're 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 doing something to create an exciting situation you can do it you, of course you can you know the D&D police aren't going to come around and it really sort of stuck in my mind that um that that if you feel like you're so used to constrained by the rules you don't know what you are allowed to do mm. when in actual fact people who are long in a tooth and got as great much gray hair as the three of us have it, we know we can do whatever the heck we want so what i wanted to do was capture I, I really, and then this is where the, the you know the name came from. Can we take an encounter? Can we show how to make it epic? Can we put do all that hard work, heavy lifting of, of of actual scenario design and encounter design, and distill it in a way that's really easy for someone to pick up? And if you're experienced um, GM, you can pick it up and run it as a one shot at a convention with almost no prep. If you're a less experienced GM, you can pick it up, read it through, and you can run a coherent, well thought out banging encounter that that just I mean the, the elevator pitch that I used internally is I want to take a dragon which if you if you don't know what you're doing a dragon is a is a bag of hit points and a, and a breath weapon that recharges on a five plus if you know what you're doing a dragon needs to be the most pant wettingly terrifying exhilarating exciting experience it should be the pinnacle of your D&D &D adventurers lives because the game is called Dungeons and Dragons. Dragons need to be badass. So how can we do that? So what can we do with a red dragon? You know, so we've got the red dragon laughing as he pushes his treasure into the lava pools and the adventurers go, oh, I'm not gonna get the treasure, stop him. Ah! And then he focus beams his fire breath on, on the mouthiest, you know, like adventurer or player that there is. And then he swoops up and starts knocking stalactites down and they're raining down on like, you know, on the cavern floor. It's all stuff that you, I, I mean, I know I've, I've played in games that you guys have run. This is stuff that we just do normally mm. that, that, that doesn't always occur to people. So it's a pre-written, pre um, pre-thought-out epic encounter. And then we've just looked to um, repeat the formula. So we do a tribe of dudes. So we've got uh, kobolds and goblins and we're working on snake people and skeletons and all sorts of stuff like that. And then for each tribe of things or, or group of things there is a big epic monster so you buy the two boxes plug them together and you've actually got you know well the pace that um baz and, and my monday night game we've got at least three months worth of content in those two boxes so. <laughs> and i've got a fun evening <laughs> yeah i feel personally attacked but it's accurate that's not your fault <laughs> It's not your fault. I mean, that's a, possibly a topic for another day, but there's there's meat on that bone to kind of gnaw on, I'll tell you that much. Let's just say that an epic encounter is not defined by its length. No, <laughs> that's no. another kind of noob thing, isn't it? You know, And, and to be fair, Matt, you, you see stuff like this 
you know riffing off your point there about people don't necessarily know or have the the kind of the experience to know how to play straight out of the book if you look on the internet you might assume that combats have to be two hours to count mm. um which is you know that's the opposite of an epic encounter i think for right-minded people mm. <laughs> i mean you know play how you want but not that way <laughs> don't, do, don't do that way yeah yeah do 250 hit points of, of dragon who, who does a breath weapon every three rounds Pfft. You know, yeah. I'd rather play Demon Souls on my PlayStation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So pivoting across to you then, Baz, for a second, there's been a lot of online play uh, this year, uh, right. which has been good for visual effects and stuff like Roll Twenty or, or other providers are available. Uh, a lot of people have been doing great work with uh, producing virtual tabletops and tokens and maps mm. and stuff. Something like Epic Encounters though gives the opportunity to get toy soldiers again and playing real meat space how do you feel that might uh, transpire next year if people could start meeting up in public again or certainly around each other's houses do you think there's probably more opportunity there because now we're used to seeing more of having counters for stuff and getting maps you can mess about with and stuff like that do you think it might help people use miniatures more in games again when they play in real life yeah the the gilded cage of roll 20 right Mm -hmm. it is um it's been a real learning curve. I mean, I don't naturally come to video type stuff or computing stuff very easily. It's not what I do in my day job. And, and you know, these things always have quite a steep learning curve for me. Uh, but I've spent a year, as, as a lot of people would have done with either Foundry or Astral, or in my case, Roll20, which I think is probably the most common virtual tabletop. And um, and I've really grown to love it. But but as I've done so, and we're, getting to, we're hopefully getting to the stage where we're thinking of 2021 and being in the same room as each other and getting out of Chessex battle mats again I'm kind of thinking about you know what 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 have been the benefits of these of this uh, these assets um, and what am I going to miss when we're not using those so much and of course there's loads of like, hybrid ways of like taking your TV off the wall and sticking it on top of your table and you know running stuff through that and I think you know Matt and I have discussed this as well you know if we're thinking about epic encounters again sometimes the most epic encounters we've ever had have just been sketched out on the back of a, a notepad you know with a, with a sharpie um, mm-hmm. and you've used like coins and chewits to represent things I don't think there's anything especially noble in doing that you know I don't think <laughs> I don't want to be like you know the um the, the shaker movement of role-playing where it's all <laughs> got to be handcrafted and you know if because you, if you've got the right kit there's there's nothing better but there, but there can be a bit of a tyranny to, to minis and assets and all of that stuff, can't there? Because I think once mm-hmm. you start down that road, you've got to keep going. Uh, and I think one of the things that, that I won't miss is, I, much as I enjoy prepping for virtual tabletop stuff now, and I do, I am spending an equal amount of time prepping the there's tokens and the scenery and the handouts to thinking about scenes that might happen. And it does make improvisation a little bit trickier because... It's difficult for the it's, it's difficult to not be meta isn't it you know like in call of cthulhu campaigns where if you get given a handout you think well we must be on the right tracks yeah yeah <laughs> so you know if you're playing in a fantasy game and uh, and the gm transitions you to a new page and it's got a forest on it with like you know some stone cir- a stone circle in the middle we think oh blimey we must be on the plot <laughs> but if it's just like a blank grid and they're feverishly sketching away something in cyan and magenta 
you're going, oh god, it's the wrong size. Oh, that'll do. Well, that's a wagon, and you're kind of looking at it sideways, thinking, is it? <laughs> <laughs> then you know the word side quest is just be- beamed across the screen. Isn't it? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, there is no of that. I I like minis. I've always liked minis in my game. You know, I've, I'm a fan of fourth edition D and D. So you know that that would tell you all of my credentials. And I like Game of Bling, and I like the kit. I am kind of looking forward to being unshackled from from the uh, from the tokens, the assets, and everything else. Um, but it will be peculiar to start pushing some skeletons across the board and go like, just imagine it's a knoll, will you? I mean, you know, it's <laughs> like, oh, it's that hobgoblin. He comes out for every fight. <laughs> that's part of the that's part of table talk, though, isn't it? And that's part of the traditions and stuff that gets invented around your table over time. Gary the Ghoul. Yes, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Back in the, the good old days when I played RuneQuest 2, um, we had, well, the, the guy who was running it called Rick, his older brother had based a game with him, and he'd inherit all his knowledge and way of doing things off him. And so whenever there was a battle, he had um, the old GW floor plans box sets, I don't know if you remember them. You nice, got, yeah. You had like A4 sheets of flags, uh, flagstones and stuff like that, and you cut them out and made things. Mm-hmm. So he had, he had a collection of those in a collection, like a box of minis. And uh, you know there'd be a, a battle car that was representing a trollkin or something, and all that kind of stuff. But we, you know, we all knew battle cars was, and they'll like you say, Gary the Gill. Everyone, each of these miniatures had a name. So when whichever trollkin it was from one to nine that was attacking you, you knew if you said it's like left wing red dragon, hmm. which only had one left wing, you knew which one he meant straight away by looking at it. So yeah, it's it's interesting now that sort of stuff. Your imagination almost takes over then, and you can just see nine trollkin all of a sudden. Rather than the weird collection of miniatures that he had, yeah, it, you you do move past it, and um, and I think you know theatre of the mind is kind of like a, an overused expression, um, but it, but there is definitely something to be said for for, for using you know, the best graphics chip in the world, your brain, because uh, I've been um, I've been playing D and D with Matt on Mondays now for the last year, and we I'm using assets that Wizards of the Coast have provided, and and they're lovely, they're beautiful things. But there is a sense of um, it, it does feel a bit like refereeing imperial assault relentlessly now and laying down another tile and and even if we've not got, we're not in initiative order uh, and I don't even put the grid on it but you feel like everyone's moving around like a Cluedo board mm-hmm. pushing their tokens around one at a time and peeking round corners and 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 that's I think unconsciously over time I've certainly noticed as GM that both myself and players sometimes forget to narrate to even the most basic level because right. in you know because you just move your token to a point on the map and you assume that everyone's watching that happen and no one said anything <laughs> uh, whereas you know when in when you're in a, the sort of the more natural organic conversation of style of anything you have to say what you're doing otherwise it didn't happen did it you know Correct. <laughs> because, yeah. um, you know whether that be like knocking an arrow which is a nice little you know descriptive flourish which is you know you can use or not use but but when it comes to like you know casting a spell and people are just clicking on an effect to have it come up in the chat window instead of saying anything then i think something's been lost in the process so i won't miss that part but i will miss having instant access to everything on screen so we can all figure out what's going on you know accuracy has gone up massively clarity has gone up massively uh possibly imagination's been dialed down a little bit in response to that do you think that's a reasonable trade-off though because i'm not sure i'm okay with that as an equation well yeah i mean it's uh i mean it'd be interesting to see what your take on this is matt because you have to produce stuff for like professional you know for consumer output um and 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 guys i know that you know if you don't mind me saying recently you've been getting back into magic 
-hmm. and I think like the magic card has always been like you know my touchstone for uh, how well they get a little bit of narrative flair in and some mechanics and some art all on like a piece of card and I've I've always had that in my mind when I'm trying to do my turn in a role-playing game is is get the narrative flourish out nice and succinctly but also make sure everyone knows what mechanics you're trying to use that's mm. a real that's that's not an easy task at all it really isn't easy and it goes back to the thing you said about your friend Charles and like you know I don't know how to play D&D because they don't tell you this do they they don't tell you how to state your action in a way that that is interesting imaginative brings fun to the table and lets the poor beleaguered DM know that you're using a knife and not a you know not bashing them with a shield or whatever it is yeah one of, one of the things that actually having played with both of you guys you're both really good at is um like a like a good improv acting partner you you land a platform for someone else to launch off of mm. as well and that's not just like a combo or an in an in world thing you're literally opening the door for someone else to then do something on top of that and and build a scene between you and i think yeah. you're right no one really teaches you how to do that stuff um, mm. And I do think I think you, I think your observations about roll twenty. I, I feel like there's a there's a trap with roll twenty, which is you want to make. I mean, I have like mild OCD. Like, if I'm going to make a game, I want all my maps to have a similar style. Yeah. I don't like seeing a map that's been grabbed from Dyson and then another one from Mike Schley and then another one from you know this guy and that guy and and then a quick one that you knock together yourself. It's like, Ugh. and I know Gaz, you're the same because like me you take all your imagery that you want to create and you run it through a uniforming filter to mm. make it look the same and coherent and i feel it's important because I, th I feel like if you are creating good assets then then you're managing then people's expectations of your game will increase just because your assets look good and that is one of the advantages of using the ones that wizards do for example because they're obviously coming out of a professional outfit but it puts so much pressure on you if you want to go outside of the off the off the beaten path, and I know Baz and I have talked about this quite a lot this year. Actually, is mm. how do you create a world that feels full of opportunity and open to player agency, and you can do whatever you want when it's going to take me at least an hour to kind of prep a you know a couple of maps and a and a couple of encounters and drag the right tokens in the right place. You can't just do that at the table like you can with a you know with a whiteboard and a, and a couple of tokens and I feel like because I think one of the best sessions that we actually have had this year Baz is is mm. the one where we randomly went off piste and just decided to stage a coup in Vandalin and get rid of Harbin <laughs> Wester because he was up to no good and we quickly got you know rallied around all the town elders got them on board and then we basically paid him off and saw him out of town on the back of a donkey and it was really cool and then we had like a town hall meeting in the pub and and stuff went down and like you know a vampire attacked with their you know sort of undead um minions and it was that was just a brilliant session and the reason it felt brilliant to me was it felt like it was really player driven whereas a lot of the other sessions are quite well we know what we're going to do because we pre-agreed it last week because you know we need to give you a fighting chance of having the right maps in the right place and, and knowing what your prep is so mm. I'm looking forward to getting back to, to gaming in peop in person I will miss a lot of like the integrations between D&D &D Beyond and, and, and Roll20 are, are, are great really enabling but I also miss the organic feel of, of having a proper paper character sheet and 
being able mm. to flick through the PHB and work out what your ability does and just rolling. I actually miss rolling a dice. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, rolling dice is something I miss. I've got all kinds of dice in various locations around the house in caches, but I, don't, I just don't use them anymore. Yeah. And I've tried a bit with some of the online games like Legend of the Five Rings that we played recently. I've got two sets of the special dice because one set isn't enough, obviously. But in the end, I was using the online roller because it was just easier and everybody else can see what's going on. So unless you're there around with people, rolling dice yourself feels a bit lonely, to be honest. Oh, it is, mate. I mean... Um friend of the show other matt who is um is an absolute master with roll 20 he he plays it like a virtuoso violinist there's nothing he can't do with it and he knows all the macros and all the shortcuts and he's um i think he is able because he is so well prepared it makes it look like he can improvise any any encounter up because he's got it all to hand he's really good at it but and i know matt won't mind me saying this but he doesn't use the dice roller he uses actual plastic dice and all, all of our stuff as players goes up on the screen and I can follow along and I can watch Matt's rolls and I can watch him, you know, I can, I can watch Rich's rolls or Tracy's or whatever. But when the, when the, the, the GM's rolling and it feels really, really old fashioned, like, you know, when it was behind the screen. Yeah. Like it used to be back in the 80s. And uh, Matt is not cheating or fudging in the slightest, I guarantee it. But it is a disconnect. Mm. And I don't want to take his plastic or his metal away from him. <laughs> I kind of wish he'd just use the buttons on the screen. And then that means it's my problem, not his, and we need to get back around the table pronto. <laughs> There's a philosophical GMing thing at stake there. I think I've always rolled, even when we played D&D around at my place, if you remember, I don't have a GM screen. I roll my dice out in front of everyone because I want people to know that if the dice rolls a 20, you're going to be taking a crit. I'm not going to yeah. fiat that and fudge it behind the screen I want you to know that the game is dangerous and if you if you lose fair and square you lose fair and square you know otherwise I, I think there's that kind of otherwise, why are you rolling dice yeah but then there's other GMs who quite like the control of the dice but also the mystery well you don't know whether your spot hit and roll was successful or not <laughs> imagine the turmoil in his mind whether he knows or doesn't know really just roll the damn dice so we know what's going on. Yeah. I think the other thing I've found with um, Roll20 stuff is people are kind of used to it now as well, if you know what I mean. So certainly a couple of games more recently, I've produced lots of maps and stuff and got all this like really interesting setups. And as you say, I've filtered it all, so it all looks the same. And I've, you know, I've got my nice tokens that I've made and all this kind of stuff. And I was expecting after hours of labour, at some point somebody would go, oh, this is quite cool. But no one did at any point, and it's just kind of expected. You know what I mean? And I don't, I don't blame any players for this, but I'm the same. As soon as a map comes up and there's some tokens on it, I'm like thinking of my strategic options or tactics or something like that. I'm not really thinking like, oh, where'd you get that? That's a nice map. I bet it took you ages to do all these tokens. I'm thinking about the game. So from a, a GM point of view as well, I find it a little bit disheartening that I'm having to put more prep into stuff like that that I wouldn't for a pen and paper game, and I'm not entirely sure the players care that much mm. Mm. Um, I, I, I think and on the other side of the screen just to sort of finish that point off sorry Matt you he's a um, guy's running some Shadows of the Demon Lord for us and um, he got he's hilarious he does hand drawn maps and they are terrible uh, um, I, I love him for it I'm sure he won't mind me saying because they look like he's just done them there and then but he hasn't so they're like people <laughs> oh god but, but he's just done a sharpie and he just he genuinely doesn't care he, like, he just doesn't care uh, and you'll have a, a map that's pulled off the internet but it'll be the wrong resolution so it's like super blown up 
Oh, or I hate it when when they're kind of like they're skewed and like all oh, the aspect ratios out and you can see it all stretched and everything like ah. But once I get over my initial you know shock and a little bit of sick coming up at the back of my throat, it's it doesn't matter as soon as the fight starts and we start rolling virtual dice by pressing buttons. Uh, I don't actually care and nobody does. You just got some features on there that you might want to use. So oh, there's a wall over there. I'll go and, I'll shoot my arrow and I'll go and hide behind that wall and think and you just do stuff with it. So I guess from a functional point of view. Guys, uh, maps and mine uh, are equal in that respect. It doesn't really matter. It's mm. just that I've I've gone over the top sometimes. I think possibly, and I don't need to worry about it so much. And in fact, sketch maps even online are probably all right. Mm. Yeah, it'd be nice to have. Um, I've got a um, um, a piece of software on my on my PC that I use quite a lot called Bamboo, which um, mm. it's got some kind of algorithmic smoothing that happens on your on your on your pen stroke. Um, and because I've got a graphics tablet, I, I, I'll usually, you know, especially in 2020, I'll share my screen when I'm kind of brainstorming ideas with the design team and, and things like that. And we'll be sketching stuff out. And when you do like a ragged circle, it then smooths it all out and makes it actually look like you've got some artistic talent. And it's, <laughs> and, and, and you do, I've, I've done maps with those before, actually, and like they look quite cool because then you can kind of get the water, watercolour brush and just sort of like paint in where, where's grass and nice. where's dirt and... And things like that, um, and it would be nice if there was something like that in Roll Twenty or a, or, or a VTT, mm. where you could literally just go, or a bit like Myro, you just go right. Here's a blank thing. I've got some basic shapes and stickers and whatnots over here. Drag them across, quickly draw it out. Bang! Right, we're off, guys. Because you can do. I mean, when you're at the table, you put the whiteboard down in the middle of the table. You clear all the you know, all the drinks and crisps out of the way. Put the whiteboard down. And while you're dry erasering it out, you're telling them what else. Like this is the cliffs, and the ogre's on top of the cliffs, and he looks like he's got a big supply of boulders. And you draw some boulders there, plonk the ogre down, and here's some muddy ground, and here's the forest. And people have got you're you're building the scene in their minds as you're drawing it terribly on a whiteboard. Yeah. And yeah, I think you could do that on online. I really do. Um, just going back to what you were saying, though, it always reminds me of um, uh, a line from an Eminem song, which is. Um, uh, you're not in, you're not impressed anymore. You're used to it, and mm. I think that, that when you start delivering that kind of quality standard, like high quality, people are initially are like, "Oh, this is cool," and then they're like, "No, no, this is what we always get. This is normal. Yeah, yeah, this is now normal." <laughs> and it's, but do you not think? Um, do you not think Roll Twenty and like uh, or, or VTT prep is just an extension of the world building wank that that games masters love to lose themselves in? Because I do, I, I think I, I sit there and I often go through all my Roll Twenty assets and put them into folders and I rename them so mm. they're easier to find and, and I get rid of the tokens I don't really like so it's all nice and neat and ordered. It doesn't make me run better games. It doesn't make me prep any quicker. It's rubbish, <laughs> but I can't help but do it. I just it's like reordering the apps on your iPhone. Oh yeah, yeah, I use that app a little bit more, so I move it. You know, I move it onto a screen that's easier to get to. It doesn't make mm. any difference. No, it's, it's quite satisfying just moving stuff around and, and sorting and organising on the mistaken belief that, uh, that come game night you'll be able to just pluck the right ogre out of nowhere and magically make it appear on the right screen. Yet one year into our Roll20 campaign, Matt, I still haven't given you player permission to move your own character, have I? So <laughs> all, of this, all of these good ideas... It does make intense. me chuckle because you try so hard each session really and there's do. always one I person really who goes, do. can't move my token, Baz, and you're like, for the love of God! <laughs> 
This is what I mean. There's there's been quite a steep learning curve, and it's I know there's a sunken cost fallacy to all this stuff, but I I kind of don't want to turn away from it now because I've, I've put some effort into learning this damn stuff. Hmm. But I mean, it's not just the assets. I mean, you know, there's there's been as as this last year has proven, and and, and we were all doing some online gaming before this year, but but clearly we had no other option than to do it this year. And it has, and I, I think we've always been to a degree advocates of it because just think what it's brought together just think of the games that we've had that we would not have oh, had yeah. with those people this year it's, it's you know sometimes it's not even about the dice roller or, or the battle map is it it's about the little the little thumbnails with the people in it you know the uh, <laughs> the, the people we play with who I've, I've never met in real I life don't, I don't think it's <laughs> melodramatic to say but I, I think without VTT and with with you know a majority of the world in lockdown role playing might have died out you know, like this year, yeah. because otherwise, you know, how would you get get your fix? How would you get your game? And you'd end up just playing on your PlayStation more, wouldn't you? You know, and back when I used to make video games, we had a concept as every every time someone turns off the console, there is a percentage of people who will never turn it back on. So mm. everyone who turns your game off, you will lose people because they will never come back to your game because they'll buy another one or they'll just, you know, you know, you know, and it's the same with. With role-playing games, I think every time you end a session, percentage-wise, there are people around the world that is the last session they're ever going to play. It's like this podcast. It's the last ever Correct. podcast until <laughs> the next one, right? <laughs> but that's right. I mean, when you were talking about Kickstarters and when Gaz asked the question early on, I was listening to your answer with interest because my opinion was that this year has been, in many ways, really good for the hobby, but probably quite bad for the industry. I don't. I can't back that up. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but that would be my gut feel. Is that um, although I think people have been buying things and so on, that that lack of real networking was apparently where you know where gaming was happening, and, and all all successful game stores have to run off the fact that they're a gaming cafe first and a, and a sales outlet second. That networking has been so important to role playing, but actually. I don't know how many people have gotten into role playing this year, but us grognards have never had more games. I, th I think it'd be it's, it's impossible to track at the best of times. Perhaps only Wizards of the Coast and maybe Paizo would know, have access to data on this. But are there is there new blood coming into role playing in this last year when people have been unable to go in their normal vector, whatever that vector is? I mean, again, I've got no no evidence to back this up with, but I'm going to give a an opinion as if it's fact. Anyway, I, I think more people than ever will have been got into gaming online. I think because. As we've discussed on previous podcasts, things like Critical Role and the other shows have driven more people into D&D than anything else in history, mm. arguably. Uh, and if your inlet into role-playing games as such is watching stuff online or seeing recordings or whatever else, then it would seem a natural extension to then play online yourself as well. When you Google in, how do I play online or whatever, how do I play RPGs, and then an advert for Roll20 or something else pops up, or you're watching some people using an app and you think, oh, I wonder what that, and you get the app yourself, and they all have looking for game threads attached and that kind of thing. I suspect, if anything, what you, I think what we might be true on is that the getting together and playing around a table in public might, might have taken a hit, and that might mm -hmm. die off a bit, but I suspect the on-ramp for digital has been a lot higher to, to counteract that but the, the way we used to play like playing in shops and stuff might be on the decline because there aren't as many shops open mm, yeah and then that might just lead to a natural decline of that branch of the tree 
It's interesting thought building off of that as well because I, from my personal experience this year I've got to play with a load of new people so you mentioned hmm. guys running Shadows of the Demon Lord well I got, you know I got to play 13th Age with him and uh, we did Vassen as well didn't we Vassen hmm. Vassen yeah um, and obviously Matt and Tracy over in West London who I might have played a game with at a show once a year maybe now kind of get to you know play D&D with them really often Dickie August up in Manchester, you know, that you guys like being exposed to kind of so many different people in different games has, has given me a much greater breadth, I feel, and has taught me different ways of playing games. Now, I mm. obviously settle on my own way that I enjoy playing the game, and that's reflected in the characters that I play, but there are but that's more rounded now because I'm now more aware of more other people's, you know, ways of playing and what they want to get out of the game. So I wonder if, you know, sort of a, a philosophical level, has role playing just got better because we've got better because we've played with more people and because having to talk on a Zoom call or, or whatever your your, your flavour is teaches you good mic control, teaches you brevity and how to kind of interact with each other. You know, all these kinds of things. Are we just getting a little bit better as a result of it? So when we come back to the table, all these good habits all sort of flood in and then and then the ease of use of being in person, I don't know, I'm quite excited by it to be honest with you. There is an element of that. I think I'm still finding with some players that they play like they're around a table and you have to ask them to be quiet because they're still <laughs> they want to give their like two pence on what everybody else is saying every time someone else acts as well. It's like we can only hear one person at once. It's like watching politics live or something, and the you know the chairperson has to keep leaning and going like the viewers at home can't hear you because three people are all speaking. It's that kind of thing. But yeah, I agree. I like my my uh, skills as GM and whatever else have come from uh, going to lots of conventions over the years and playing with lots of different people and playing lots of other people's different games. And it is that breadth of experience that gives you the all kinds of different tools and approaches and. And ways to refine your game and, and find your own sort of style as well so yeah I, I, you know without the expense of having to book a hotel or go to a three-day residential con or something like that the online environment definitely allows people to get more experiences and play with a whole host of different people from all around the world uh, so yeah it can only be for the good from that perspective so Baz do you think well, we're probably going to get to some sort of face-to-face -face gaming next year, probably. Let's let's just... I don't want to get into too many predictions, but let's assume that's <laughs> going to happen. Do you, do you think there's um, any any different games you're going to play from that perspective? Are there new things that you want to try, perhaps, in a face-to-face -face environment that you wouldn't online, maybe? For example, one of the guys in, in our Demon Log game, he, we've tried to get him to run some RuneQuest because he's, he's a big Glorantha fan. Uh, and he's promised he'll do it face to face, but absolutely refuses to do it online for for whatever reasons. Um, but as yeah. like a, a legitimate concern for some people, I guess that they just don't feel without that personal connection, perhaps, or because of having to deal with the technology as well. That's an extra thing they have to worry about as well as being a GM. Do you think there's more opportunities in real life? I think I think some games are more suited for online play than than other ones. Um... Uh, and that can go from one extreme to another. I mean, one of one of the the sets of games is two games I, I really want to play and never have done: Dusk City Outlaws and Spectaculars, both by Rodney Thompson. Um, they're both both games that I really, really wouldn't want to play or GM. But because of their very nature, they're heavy on card decks and tokens, um, 
and uh, bits of paper that the group writes on and so on and yeah, you can do it online and, and, and people have, have done some of the hard yards for us already but it's never frankly I'm not going to I'm not going to not going to bother myself with that I'll wait till I can get around an actual table to do it I suppose stuff that's absolutely ideal is like you know some of these Wizards of the Coast um, stuff that uh, that I've invested in or, or nicked uh, which is built for that kind of thing and I think this year we saw the release of a game called Burn Bright which is built on Roll20 there isn't a book you do just have it as a you know as a software pack yeah and it's all there for you so clearly that's built exactly for that but most games fall in the middle and i think you know you if you want to play traveler or call of cthulhu or RuneQuest, nothing's stopping you doing it either way for me next year i definitely definitely want to bring some of the lessons that i've learned about my group to see whether they work in in meat space going forward it feels like a very very long time ago since we were all sat on the table it's, it's not that long realistically speaking I, mean, I can remember like Matt you were using your little plastic tokens that you'd made to represent uh, the baddies and the bosses and so on I remember sitting in your kitchen and it does feel like it was yesterday in a way and I kind of can't wait to get back to that I think we'll just slot back into stuff normally when we do I don't think there'll be any any big divergence from that so it doesn't feel like gaming's been on pause at all. It's been a great year for gaming, and I think I just want to continue that. And and I think it will only, yeah, I kind of can't wait to share the biscuits again because that's the <laughs> bit that we're missing. That is honestly the bit that we're missing. Steve in our group is is the tea monkey, and he loves doing it. And um, and and you know we we always have a couple of cups of tea and we share out the hobnobs every single week. But clearly we haven't done that since March, and and that little social aspect. We have become more disciplined as gamers, there's no doubt about it, and that's why we're only playing for two hours. If you play a four-hour session around a table, you're only playing for two hours, aren't you? <laughs> the other two hours is is all the friend stuff. And and that that's that's something that, that I cannot wait to get back to. It's been it's you know, I haven't seen either of you two from the from the chest down for a very long time. <laughs> and and that is that's bullshit. And I need that stuff back in my life because gaming is really, really important to me. But mostly, it's important because of the friends that I've made, and you know we're all still friends. But my goodness, do we need to share a beer and, mm. and push a mini across the table and you know and just connect? <laughs> That's the bad bit. Yeah, you're not wrong there. Although I suspect I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. I, I suspect I'll still be playing games online. That's I've been really glad for the explosion of online play this year because I've got loads of games and all of a sudden where I was getting very few actually just occasional online playing so I might lose some games as people go back to meet space in their local cities or whatever and don't spend as much time online which is a bit sad but it'd be nice to think that somewhere in Nottingham there's players waiting in the cocoons ready to come out as gaming butterflies <laughs> in, in the months to come but but we'll have to see because my local game shop closed and it wasn't COVID related it was before that the, the yeah. um the proprietors kind of seen the writing on the wall with the way uh, Wizard of the Coast were doing the Magic the Gathering releases and stuff like that and he was always a big store for it and he did midnight openings and all that kind of stuff and 48 hour long tournaments and all this kind of stuff but even then he could see the way that it was going and it just wasn't going to be worth reading the lease and keeping the shop open so it'll be curious to see what real life games there are and how you get one it almost feels like I'm going back in time 30 odd years and I'm thinking of writing postcards to put in the post office window saying gamers wanted, but doing it in a different way put, to get real people. Put them in telephone people. boxes. 
Yeah, maybe. If you can find one. <laughs> I think I think that the thing that I'm really looking forward to is the different types of games that we've naturally just moved away from because we're playing online. So really heavy player agency games. Mm-hmm. I like I like the idea of getting back into really heavy player engagement, side conversations, people planning mm-hmm. things, talking about stuff doing like you know little role playing scenes just between t- the two of them having a general hubbub of conversation around the table i'm missing that and I, you, it's impossible to do that online and i and i'd like to kind of play or run a game that really encourages that sort of feeling to it um because it's something that we've missed really heavily for the last year the players don't talk to each other enough in online games well i say that as a player myself sometimes as well player-to-player conversation is the hardest one to have in an online environment unless you're given you know instruction to do that if your gm says right you two have a chat now we'll all listen which is a bit weird for them to say that but it almost has to be moderated to that degree whereas around an actual table it's much more likely to happen isn't it and those player-to-player conversations are are the gold in a lot of sessions so they're they're a bit harder to come by it it is much more moderated and refereed online isn't it Mm. Yeah, that's true. In, in our Demon Lord game, again, I referenced that we, we're having quite good bants in the game, so to speak. But it does then rely on the GM at certain points to say, anyway, and so, and various other like interjections, so that to let us know that we now have to stop speaking amongst ourselves and that right. he can get some the next plot bit in or whatever it is, or like introduce the, some story structure. Because otherwise, it'd just be us talking to each other in funny accents for an hour. So there's. You, you kind of can have your, your sort of player interaction, but even then, you kind of feel like you're allowed a certain amount of player time before the stopwatch clicks, and then you have to shut up for a minute because the chair wants to turn, not unreasonably. Yeah. Dude, but uh, just on that note, I mean, for me, we've always, we've talked about this quite a bit, and I know we have slightly different views on it, but for me, an hour talking in character with, with other people around the table is not an hour wasted. Like, and... and if the story stalls out for a, for an hour or so, so be it. Like you know, for me, being in character is is fascinating and interesting. And I think what that does then is that spins into: Do you feel so? Let, let's make this a question: Do you feel that there is a pace difference between, or, or your expected pace is different between being online? Because generally, online sessions are about two two and a half hours because they're really fatiguing, especially for the GM versus an in-person kind of game which can be a nice sort of three or four hours and 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 probably get the similar sort of content done but it just feels a little bit more chillaxed a bit more kind of you know it doesn't have to feel as pacey all the time do you think that's what do you think of that i think online games are definitely compressed so if we play a tour game and you want to like just chat amongst yourselves for an hour if i'm a gm who turned up to that that means i'm not speaking for an hour and i've organized a game so that'd be a bit weird you know, I, I wouldn't feel like, you know, I don't think I'd be sat there going, oh, I'd be having a great time, this is amazing. I'd be going, this is an hour of my life and I'm not even getting to say anything at the minute. This is rubbish. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I'm sort of like taking it to extremes to, to prove the point. But if, you, if you're if you at a, a four-hour convention game in a hotel or whatever, there have been times when the players have started talking amongst themselves and thinking, oh, good, I can, I can have a break for a bit now. I can go and get a coffee or I can lean back and just like think about the next scene because they're busy doing whatever they're doing and at some point I will yeah an hour is too long for me like I, I, that's not role playing 
<laughs> in, the, in terms of role playing game the game bit's not happening it's just some guys uh, improving but I've no problem with like players talking amongst themselves especially in character that happens far too rarely yeah you know the length of the game it's like what percentage of your total game are you taking up with that activity and how much fun do you find it is what it comes down to I think there's a really important line between just bantering on about stuff and actually talking about stuff in the in the game so if I've if I'm running a game and the players are talking in character with each other and it feels like they're talking about the plot and the things that are going on I actually take a quite a sense of pride that I've created a situation or a small segment of the world that's engaged people to the point where they want to poke at it a bit more and, and talk about it I'm quite happy to sit back and let them enjoy that because I enjoy the fact that they're enjoying it but if they are just peeing about and, and not really doing anything then yeah I'll get bored real quick and shivvy them along so yeah I, th- I think in um, I think it's, it's an indisputable fact that, that gaming tables have a certain dynamic and um, everybody's improvising a show and it's different online to how it is around a real table simply because of all those little visual clues that you get those cues body language all of that kind of stuff often the GM is the person who seems to be in charge of the throttle on games I don't think it has to be that way but usually it is and there's definitely a sense of reading the room and I think, you know, whenever the three of us have discussed, like, you know, GMing tips or, or best practice, we've talked about that ability to read the room. And, and if everybody is comfortable with some extended dialogue or shopping trips or, you know, the critical role, two hours of ordering a drink, then if everyone's great with that, then you've got you've to make sure that people are still surfing that wave and enjoying it. And you can sense when when there's one person two people the whole room is is happy to move on or things need to stop or whatever all of those things are much easier to do around a real table than they are online and that that's that's just an absolute fact so it is it is much more difficult to read mood especially if people aren't showing their faces online and they're just just on an audio track uh, or you've got things where you literally don't know if they've frozen or they're just not talking or whatever and it's like no dude you're on mute you're on mute that sort of stuff just means it's almost like you have to be a bit more the professional is not the right word but you've got to be a bit more on deck and mindful of the discipline of playing online mm-hmm. and that means you lose stuff that I, I think genuinely to Gaz's point and, and to yours Matt as well I, I think that is not an ideal environment for uh, for free play because if you've got four, five, six people online you're excluding more people than you're including because of that environment so that's something I think to be mindful of. You know, it's, you're right, Matt. I think those player agency games, I can't wait to get back to them. I wouldn't even attempt them with our current group in our current circumstances. Wouldn't even try it. I think it's. I think it's very difficult. Just, yeah, just something you sort of said about the pressure on the GM in a in an online game to be the arbiter of pace and and progression. I think it's entirely natural because if you're in in real world as you say you can read body language you can start <clears throat> clearing your throat and kind of you know rationally like kind of gathering the players around as a player who wants to drive things forward you get a sense that everyone's had a chance to contribute because mm. you know you just you just know that because we're human beings and we're used to talking to to each other but online you've got that it's like our monday group sometimes gets paralyzed into doing nothing 
not because we don't know what we want to do. Everyone has ideas. We're too damn polite to kind of like, well, yeah, we could do this and I could do like a minor illusion and, and have myself walking through the courtyard and then we could sneak around the back way. Yeah, we could do that. Or I could, you know, I could do this and that and the other. And you're like, okay, well, what should we do? Well, I don't know. And then you end up not, not doing anything at all until you get mm -hmm. like a mouthy person just go, right, we're doing this. And we and we go off and we and we do it, but it's easier to kind of accede to the GM in that regard and let the GM kind of like drive that pace along. Right, cool, you've got your plan. Right, this is what happens. So I'm yeah, I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to to our politeness being something that we can manage through body language and and kind of proximity rather than it being a bit of a thing. To be honest with you. <laughs> Yeah, just the ability to make sure that everyone's looking in your direction is a really big deal. Yeah, you know, it's um, best will in the world. You have no idea if someone's actually looking. They look like they're looking at you online, but they could well be scanning Twitter. <laughs> you know, and and at a table, nobody would ever pull their phone up in front of their face and start doing it. <laughs> but you know, that can actually happen, and this I'm sure has happened to all of us. And and you and I have I've lost count of the amount of times I feel like I've had to repeat myself online because I, I describe a situation if I'm GMing and, and, and I ask the players what they want to do and, and one of the players will, will ask a question which means that you think, well, I just said that was on fire so you, you must have missed that. <laughs> and, and, and then when it happens a second time, you think, well, you must have missed the first time and the second time that I said it was on fire. <laughs> and, and you actually said it on fire. So, <laughs> and this is natural, you know, that's not a slur on anybody at all. This is just one of the things that happens. You know, if your sound cuts out for one second, you can miss a lot of detail, uh, sometimes very important detail. Um, and in real life, I'd, in, a, in a real table, that wouldn't happen. So I suspect this is quite nuanced, and, and I hope I've remembered how to do this stuff around an actual table. I think <laughs> in the first couple of sessions are going to be really interesting. It's going to be mad, especially when we get into hour three. <laughs> mm. That's, that's going to be a stamina game, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be. I don't. I mean, I don't know if the game that you're running is going to be running by the time we're allowed to all get back together with, again because I don't feel like that's going to happen anytime this side of spring really but true because we're playing at quite a reasonable level now aren't we we're sort of yeah, 10 yeah. and 11th level now and turns do take a little bit longer and six, six players, players six players oh that's not recommended a, that's a thing I learned <laughs> from 2020 D&D doesn't work with 10 players D&D &D definitely doesn't work with 10 players online. And I ran that game for 10 months. I mean, I'm glad I, I could have told you that, but I'm, I'm glad that you found out of the different periphery. No, yeah. you did. We talked about it endlessly. It's like, what do I do? This Every week there was like, oh, yeah. And, and Aid, who's over in Iceland, he wants to come and play. Yeah, cool. Why not? You know, I'm falling off of a building already. Like, it doesn't matter how many more floors you add. <laughs> <laughs> I think we topped we topped out at eleven players one night. Ridiculous. Yeah, no. D and D literally doesn't work once you get past six players. The maths just breaks, um, and you have yeah. to really start hacking the game to make it work. You see, I think that's something. It's something I'd, I'd lent into anyway. Like conventions tend to have over the years six players for a game. I don't know who invented that number at some point, mm. but that was just a number. Uh, and uh, quite a few gems I know as well I've certainly been driving more towards four players uh, and I might go to five just because you're trying to get more people in than not but like I, I don't know whether that's a lesson from this year or not but you tend to have fewer players online anyway apart from you Matt because you're crazy 
but the, the most sensible GMs out there have reduced the number of people that they run for, arguably. And I think a lot of games just work better. I mean, for me personally, because I like having my say more often than not, it's it's good having fewer voices around the table because everybody gets more screen time, then, the GM included. Um, so maybe we'll see that transfer into the new year as well. I don't know. It depends how many friends you've got to game with, I guess. Well, it depends on the on the nature of the game as well. I'd suggest you know if you're doing a fairly heavy tactical combat heavy style game, you can get away with a few more people. So the way I survived that ten eleven player game was it really was just a dungeon carve up. You know there there was a few witticisms and a bit of bants going on, but it was pretty much roll for initiative everything ground down to kind of bullet time and 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 I it was hard work for the GM because you're trying to make sure that everyone's go takes 20 seconds or less so you can actually stand a chance of having a two or three minute round you know um which is a long bloody time for people to to not be doing anything you know yeah. I spent each of those sessions because that was um that's my kind of old old school hardcore group so we they, the boys, we would log on at eight, half eight, and expect to go till midnight. You know, so I was trashed at the end of it every single week, absolutely trashed. Going, I'll never want to do this again. And then, oh god, peer pressure. I'm gonna to have to do it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's hard work. But then, you know, like the Friday game, you know, like the the the, the Waterdeep game that we're playing is is a small, tight group now. And and you're right, having a little bit more mic time or spotlight time actually is quite good for getting to know the characters a bit better and and um but i think because that's an investigation style scenario that we're doing it it needs that i don't think you could do that with six seven eight players or or more i I just don't know how that would work because it it always kind of puzzles me whenever you play D&D and you tend to do these more urban style investigation bits is like let's say you've got six players they just move around the city in like an amorphous mass, don't they? Yeah. Well, you you wouldn't do that in real life. You'd go right. You go to the library. You go and do that. Yeah, but if you end up with some really interesting scenes, I want to make sure I'm there, you know, to add my two penny worth, you know. So you end up kind of all going around because you don't want to steal the spotlight and everything. It's it's kind of fun. So yeah, I do. I think you're right. Smaller smaller groups online are, are the closest to a to a tabletop experience, I think, than than the bigger groups. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. We're going to be running some um, another Delta Green one shot again soon, and that's got three players, and that's arguably one too many. But I, I like three as a number because it's odd, so that you've got a tiebreaker if there's a decision to be made. But you know, if you relate it back to X Files, there's Mulder and Scully. You know, six investigators don't turn around at little old Mrs. Miggins' house to question about the the apparition she saw. She'd be terrified. Six dudes with guns turning up like you'd just be like what's happening the neighbours would be calling home security I, I wouldn't know where to sit them if if six people showed up at my front door I wouldn't know where to seat them <laughs> they'd be in two different rooms <laughs> wouldn't they <laughs> but it's also like um, and players do this because we, they've watched the same movies and TV shows that the GMs have and you take X-Files a lot of the tension they create is when Scully's off doing something and Mulder's going to do something else being a bit you know a bit kooky you know and then something happens to one of them, and the other's yeah. not there to to help. Then that ramps up the, the like the drama, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Players are wise to this. They're like, no, sir, you're not gonna. You know, this is where this myth of never split the party comes from. It's abs- it's a player driven myth. The players do it. It's <laughs> like because if you don't split us, 
you can't put us in jeopardy because there's always at least four or five other people who are there to save my bacon, you know, from the troll that's just basically knocked me out and hanging me upside down over the cook pot. You know, <laughs> I just think, I, I, do, I do wish, I mean, I try and do it when I'm playing. I do wish players were, as li were a little bit more willing to kind of play along with it and put themselves into slightly stupid situations and stuff. I know, like, I think, my yeah, wizard on a Monday night goes out of his way to do, like, fairly outlandish things on his own just to try and create a bit of drama in, in <laughs> a scene, so... It sounds like we've got another podcast there to talk about, but I'm going to GM <laughs> this online session and say we're, we're short of time, if not out. So, um, just to kind of cap off, then, this, our very final podcast, potentially, uh, uh, what's your kind of, like, top wish, dream, hope, uh, aspiration for, for the coming year then? Or maybe you could do a top three if you're quick about it and know what you've got to say. But what, what's, what are you looking forward to in the new year? I'll start you off if you want because I can see pensive faces on the other side of the screen thinking about how do I order these and uh, what's the marching order of my ideas and who's going first. I've got a noobs D&D group and we've played a couple of times online. But the last couple of sessions have been cancelled last minute, as tends to happen with virtual games compared to real live ones. So I'm looking forward to going and having a dinner party style D&D game where we all bring out the nice Marks and Spencer stacks and German beer and other fine imported gins and things, which is it really is like a dinner party, but it's, it's just a good experience playing as well with relatively new people who are just about getting used to saying things like, uh, I'm going to do this rather than can I do this? And kind of just about getting to grips with that idea that it's role playing, as you were saying earlier, Matt. You can pretty much do what you want, to be honest. There might be consequences, but conventions as well is obviously a big one. I'm looking forward to meeting lots of people who I speak to occasionally on Twitter or playing the odd game with. But um, just getting up and down the country and going to different places and that feeling of being at an event or a show or something, it's, it's a lot different than... I know a lot of conventions have managed to do online virtual things and get our little chat groups in afterwards and virtual pubs and stuff. But there's something to be said for being away from family work, everything, and going somewhere, um, being amongst geeks for a few days that you just can't replicate online. How about you guys? I'm a little bit... Um, I mean, I, I am looking forward to getting back to conventions. Uh, I'm hoping... Jane Con did an announcement, didn't they? I haven't, double, I haven't checked my email. I just saw it come in. But I'm, I'm hoping the conventions will come back. But I think... I'm really looking forward to seeing the end of, of Baz's campaign um, because it feels like there's... In a good way, I hope. Well, no, in a nice way. I'm looking forward to the climax. We've been fighting against the, the cult of Talos for the best part of this year <laughs> and it'd be good to kind of, you know, rid the sore coast of, of them. And then I think between Baz and I, uh, so I might be stealing one of his, some of the ideas we've been talking about with a more player agency kind of hex crawlery style game I'm actually really looking forward to either running or playing or both ideally maybe maybe we talk about do a shared GM because that's the kind of game that you can share GMing with I think and could be quite cool so I'm definitely looking forward to that um, and I'm really looking forward to or I really want to play more games than just D&D and what I mean by that is it's so easy with D&D Beyond and Roll20 that, that I, I'm kind of thinking about, because you know, as, as, as Baz's game is sort of coming to an end, usually he and I kind of hot swap you know, the DM chair. So I'm thinking, right, 
when Baz is finished, what am I going to run? Uh, I quite like the idea of, I don't know, some Forbidden Lands, or I quite like the idea of running, you know, um, this system, or Trine's Vihander, or something like that, but it's like, I can't really be asked to work out how it works on Roll20, so I'll probably just do D&D instead, because that's going to, you know, I know how that works. So I'm looking forward to trying some new game systems that are a lot, I think, easier to do in in person because you've got the book there and you're flicking through and it's easier to explain to people how something works when you point at it on the character sheet and, and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. so they're the things I'm looking for cool yeah that, that you're absolutely right Matt I'm, I'm thinking along the same lines and, and not surprisingly I guess I think 2021 might be sandbox time um, which is a game that I've, I've never had a huge amount of success with but I, th I think I haven't given it a good enough go yet really to be honest and I, and I feel like you know we've got, uh, we've got we've got our group trained up enough <laughs> now by this point with that high, highly disciplined gaming uh, you know because one thing that, that, that has happened this year which hasn't happened in previous years is we have the opposite issue to you I think guys we always play Monday night and, and the name of our gaming group is called Rando Day Gaming because we could never settle on a day in real life <laughs> but as soon as it went online and we could just put it in a calendar people show up no travel no no issues you know people don't flake out on it at all which is which I'm stunned by to be honest so um, I, I fancy so I really do fancy doing something sandboxy and it, and like Matt it doesn't have to be D&D &D. my current obsession is the Mandalorian I think it's such a lovely episodic gameable kind of sense of a game doesn't even necessarily mean I want to play Star Wars but I do like the idea of like you know just getting a, a big map whether it be of space or a future city or a fantasy land dropping loads of points of interest all over it and saying have at it you know and um, and get, having a really good session zero where we, we get some stuff down about like you know some some proper drives and agendas at a macro level at a micro level and, and and almost see where it goes, but just uh, but keep pulling stuff in from the players to generate the next week's content. It's a small goal because really that's supposed to be the default way of playing games. But I found myself running a lot of published stuff in a quite a constrained atmosphere with maps and so on. I, I kind of want to stretch my wings a little bit. And then I suppose the other side of that for 2021 is I just hope that I get my writing mojo back. I, like many people, have found it quite difficult to be creative, um, even with time on my hands at times, a lot of time on my hands at certain times, found it very, very difficult to open the laptop and um, and hammer out some some good imaginative stuff. And that's for game prep, but also for like, you know, the writing, the writing stuff that I love to do and, you know, and the, the obligations I have to people as well. Yeah. I've actually found that quite tricky and it, it has felt a bit writer's blocky at times and I don't think these two things are unrelated at all mm. I, I think the online play the current circumstances everything else is just eating some mental space which I can't wait to fill up again with good stuff for next year wonderful and with that the sands of time have run out for this week so thanks to all our loyal listeners uh, our patrons especially who keep us afloat and paying the internet man for his hosting and other such expenses. Uh, without all the kind words we get from you out there in listener land, the likes, the shares, the social media comments and warmth, we wouldn't be able to continue in these dark times. So thanks to everyone who's helped support us, and we look forward to perhaps coming back in the new year. Yeah, 
And thanks very much for coming on again, Matt. It's always a pleasure to have you on, mate, and get your perspective on things. And uh, it's uh, it's been it's been a heck of a year, and I think you've been on a few times, mate. And you'd be welcome back any time. I yeah, well, it, I always enjoy it. It it feels like we hit the record button and then just have a chat, which is kind of what I was hoping for tonight. Anyway, that's what I said to Baz. It's like fancy a whiskey and a chat tonight. He said, "Well, you might as well because we're we're recording." I'm like, "Perfect, that'll do for me." <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, dear listeners. Don't make this the last time. Uh, This year. (laughs) Thank you.